0: Psalm chapter 110, time to get to the good stuff. John Allen and I, I believe John Allen preached for you last week. John John Allen was very upset with me that I got Psalm 110 because Psalm 110 is called a royal psalm. When we come to this, this psalm is the single most quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. Psalm 110 is explicitly a messianic psalm. There is no question in its reading. There is no question as you dive into the substance of the text where it leads. Charles Spurgeon said, You always take a beeline to the cross as you approach any passage of Scripture. Well, I'll tell you that this passage of Scripture, if it is preached in any other way other than the point the reader to Christ Jesus, it was mishandled. This passage demands that we look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you would, for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to do this. I know we normally don't do this on a Wednesday night, but would you please stand with me? Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word, resting in its authority. Lord, knowing that it is its own authority, that it's self authenticating and we come, Lord, knowing that what we the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Lord, we know that through your word, you equip saints for the work of ministry, that through your word, you make us complete. And Lord, we also know that through your Word, you make people wise unto salvation. For if there be any here who do not know you, we would you to draw them to yourself. And for those saints who are gathered, Lord, do what you always do, edify them and equip them through your word. It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you'll notice your notes real quickly. Uh, This psalm is a a really, really interesting one. Um, As you read through it, there's this really simple language that points us to the idea of Christ being king. Even in the first line, you see, uh, The Lord says to my Lord. This is David writing, and he's making reference to the Lord speaking to his Lord. And all throughout this, we'll see the idea of Christ as king. And so just as a way of preface, before we dive into the substance of what you have before you, there was a, a theme that was really one that would be constantly on the Jewish people's minds. When they thought of the Messiah, they thought of a prophet, a priest, and a king. And, and, and primarily, even at times, they would almost divorce these things, that there would be a better prophet, that there would be a better king like David, that there would be a better priest. And they would, they would kind of look to Aaron and think, well, there's going to be one better than Aaron. They'd look to a prophet like Moses and say, there's going to come one who's like Moses, but it will but but be better. There's gonna come a king like David, like Solomon, but he's going to be the most awesome king of all time. We always kind of divorced these things where there were three different men that would fill this role. This morning, this evening, what we look at is not the idea of Christ as prophet, but what we want to examine is the idea of the priest king. And so what you'll notice is on your notes you'll see three couplets. So you have couplet A, couplet B, couplet C, and then a central theme. So what this is, as you approach this psalm, you'll notice that Psalm one has a, I mean, verse one has a great correlation with verse seven. Same thing, two and six, three and five, and then that means that four is the central theme of this psalm. Picture the the first three and the last three verses as almost a frame. The basic picture is Dave, David, as he's pinning this, is saying, "I want you to see the true and better king." Now I want you to think about the beauty of this, King David is the great king of Israel. When we look back on Israel, we celebrate David above all the other kings. Perhaps we look at Solomon and we examine his wisdom and we celebrate that, but when we think of the king of Israel, we think David. David is highlighting in this psalm the true and better king. I want you to see the humility in that, but more than anything else, I want you to see the beauty of the fact that this king who is reigning in Israel is still amidst his own reign looking to a true and better king. That promised one that God had told him would come. One that would be better than him. One that would sit on his throne eternally. Not for a moment, not for a generation, but throughout the entire expanse of time. And even after time ends, this king would still reign. And so the premise here is this king is writing, and this king is pointing us ahead to a true and better king, even better than he or anyone after him would be. But all the more, and perhaps most interestingly, he highlights this phrase in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It is an odd verse to have here. If this was something in regard to his kingship, we would look at that and say, well, that makes perfect sense because David is here exalting the true king that will come after him. But this central theme of the king-priest is really what we want to develop this evening. And so what we'll do is we'll take verse 1 and verse 7, and we'll essentially examine the frame and then find the conclusion in the central theme of verse 4. So, Let's develop then, verse 1. So, the very first thing that we see is the rest of the king. So, if you look at verse 1, you'll see this. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, this is very interesting because if David just says to the Lord, but which instead you see is this idea of there is not one person, but Two persons over him. that he says, the Lord says to my Lord. David is bowing himself before the ultimately, we find the conclusion to this found in the New Testament, the triune God. The Lord says to my Lord. One of the most beautiful things about the Trinity is we see an interpersonal relationships throughout. It is what makes them indeed Trinitarian. A lot of times we can come and we can examine the Trinity and we almost think that, yes, they're, they're different persons, but they're one being. But when we look at the divine Trinity, what you find in them is actual relationship one person to another. That the Father knows and loves the Son. The Son knows and loves and even bows to the authority of the Father. That the Holy Spirit of God is that grand thing that they send out to empower the church. And as we look at this, what you see, even this one simple phrase that many would come to and have a bit of friction with. But due to the full revelation of God's Word, we know that this is the Father speaking to the Son, and David is being given just this little bit of a glimpse into it. The Lord says to my Lord. So what then are we examining? We are examining the person of Christ. God the Father is looking at God the Son, and He says this to him. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is a very interesting way to start this, especially as we look, because this is actually starting with the rest of the sun. When we consider all the things that had to unfold before Jesus would find himself seated at the right hand of the Father, we're looking forward into his divine work of mediator. The true God, true man would come, bear our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then after the completion, the fulfillment of that great propitiatory work, he sits down then to ever mediate our case. It is incredibly interesting to see and by God's grace, he gave David the ability to look in, sit at my right hand. He is indeed the Lord of Lords and he is given eternal rest for his incredibly glorious work of the cross of Christ. It is this great thing that we see. It's highlighted in Hebrews chapter 1 which said that after making atonement for sins he sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty and he is ultimately given the highest of thrones. Every time we come across passages in the Old Testament after the time of David leading into the New Testament when we think about the throne that Jesus is sitting on, it is not the idea of a Davidic throne that somehow is reformulated after the fall of Israel but instead it is a true and better throne. It is the throne that god spoke of when he promised david that there would be one to sit here it has always been and will always be christ's throne and he sits he rests after his labor and then this glorious phrase until i make your enemies your footstool so let's just kind of break this apart for just a minute first of all we see that there are indeed divine enemies hear me when i say this there are enemies of the gospel And there are enemies of God. We live in a world where often we have this grand view of inclusivism. We want everyone to be loved by God, and certainly they are. They bear His image, and due to that, He gives them His divine love. But friends, do not not be persuaded to believe that God does not have enemies. We see Paul write to his younger men in the faith and say, Beware of them. They are enemies of the cross. There are enemies but we should not be so fearful that these enemies might prevail. They will never prevail. And we can say that not with, not with hope like we use the word. Like, oh, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That's subject to whatever may actually occur. We hope like Abraham did, knowing that though Sarah was as good as dead, God could certainly Bring a child into that womb. We hope knowing that God is able. And so when we approach this and we see certainly there are enemies, we must understand those enemies will be Christ's footstool. He will rest his feet there. That these enemies have no real ability to even wage a war against Christ. Though they may try. Psalm chapter 2 really gives us a great illustration into this. It says they, they rage and plot in vain. And it says... And the God of heaven in the heavens laughs and holds them in derision. He laughs. When anyone should bring a charge or perhaps would make war against the omnipotent God, I can't imagine him doing anything but laugh. It is not a true challenge. Even when we look forward to that day of battle, perhaps, the day of Armageddon, we always see it as this like grand war that takes place with great bloodshed on both sides. Brothers and sisters, why in the world would we presume that? Is there anyone who can even, is, is, is there anything in creation that's power is even worthy to be compared to the God who possesses all power? Anyone who takes a step in the morning or breathes a breath is given the power from the only giver of power in creation. Anything we do is a result of Him allowing it and even declaring it to be. The battle will not be great. Yes, it will be great in His victory, but it will not be great on the losses because He Himself is the victor and He brings the victory. All enemies will be his footstool. This imagery is really an interesting one what you find in the days of the Egyptian slavery. There was this picture and Pharaoh would come by and he would say pray to your god for the breath of your nostrils and he would strike him intending to kill them just to show them that their god was not mighty. Well in those in that place where they would do this there was a picture of Pharaoh resting his feet on the necks of slaves. This is the imagery that the Lord uses. But the enemy is not men. The enemy is sin and death. And they are conquered. And they are conquered in full, as we'll see as we press on. And so as we look into verse 7, he drank of the brook. Now, you have out to the side there, John 18.1. If you look at John 18.1, what you'll discover is is in John 18, you have this verse. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden. Now, all of us probably are having light bulbs go off in regard to this garden. This is the garden where our Lord would pray that he would not relent from what the Lord, what the, what the Father had called him to do, that he would sweat drops of blood in our stead, that he interceded, that he longed certainly for the mediation and reconciliation of man to God. And it is in this garden where he begins to drink of an atrocious cup. It is the cup of God's wrath. All throughout Scripture, and particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, we have the first major law given with A cup involved, and it was a law given specifically to men who were jealous for their brides that they perhaps thought for a minute that their bride committed adultery, and this cup would be given to them, and if they drank the cup and they had committed adultery, essentially they would they would be barren from that point forward. All throughout, there's this idea of a cup, and this cup begins to develop throughout the Old Testament, and then we see it in its fulfillment in the Garden, starting there where. we began to drink the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it in full. Hear me when I say this because this is really, really good news for us. The reason that he sits down at the right hand of the Father, the reason that we can look forward till I make your enemies a footstool, is because brothers and sisters, the enemies have already been defeated. We're not looking forward to the defeat of sin and death. Sin and death have been defeated. We look to the cross of Christ and we always see it as a door to be entered into instead of a victory one. In the cross of Christ, what you actually have is the defeat of sin and death to all who would place their faith in Christ. It's actually accomplished. The cross is not weak nor frail. It is mighty and when Christ went to the cross to atone for the sins of his people, he did so successfully. Sin and death are actually defeated. That's why we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we see sin and death conquered and we celebrate that great truth because because sin and death is conquered, we get to dwell with Him eternally. The reason He sits down and the point in which He sits down at the right hand of the Father is after He drank this cup in full. When that cup was empty, He was gloriously seated at the right hand of the Father that He might then continuously throughout all ages mediate our case. The true God, true man, standing in for us. Because we need a better mediator. And he stands there to mediate our case. And I want you to notice this next phrase. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the idea of that great victory. We see this all throughout Scripture. But this idea of the present sufferings not being worthy of the glories that to come. Not even worthy to be compared to them. Brothers and sisters, what we see in the cross of Christ is what we would call the humiliation of Christ. That there He was crucified. We often don't depict this, and I probably would avoid this to some degree on a Sunday morning, but what you would have there is a naked Savior nailed to a tree. We call it His humiliation, and we should. It is indeed His humiliation. He came, He condescended to dwell with man, Throughout his 33 years of life, he perfectly kept the law. Every single minute detail of the law he fulfilled perfectly. And then he was nailed to a tree. Why? So that we, when we stand before the holy God, might stand there in robes of righteousness that he provided for us. He lifted his head because he was victorious he lifted his head because he had accomplished the mission that the father sent him on and he lifts his head because the glories that he endures with his that he enjoys with his ransomed bride is more glorious and not to be compared to the sufferings of his 33 years here and so what you see is this idea of the the Lord saying to my Lord, the Father saying to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then you see him actually do what is necessary to make the enemies his footstool. And he sits and he rests, enjoying the subsequent glories of his suffering. Major point. This is the King. We look at these passages, and what you see here is not just the crucified suffering servant. Certainly it is the suffering servant in which Isaiah spoke, but more than that, you see this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one that David bowed to. This crucified servant, this carpenter, is the one that David said is the Lord. And he bowed there, and he bowed there gladly. And he bows there because of the great great rest that he has, knowing that he is the better king. Can you imagine being the king of Israel, all the while thinking to yourself, I'm here as a shadow and a type, knowing that there is one better to come. And this is exactly what David is meditating on. He's saying, I know I am not the true king of Israel, but you can almost hear him echo in verse 1, but I know the true king of Israel. We always look at David, and we don't ever consider that he was indeed a king we also see that he is a prophet. He knows these things. God in his grace has revealed them to him. And so we see the king drinking of that brook by the way, and then subsequently we see him sitting at the right hand of the father. So, the king. Now... Then we see this idea of the judge. Now, in the Jewish tradition, the king was the ultimate and final authority. We can see this perhaps in the most notable and one of my favorite Bible stories, where we have two women bringing a child to Solomon and saying, "This child's mine. This child's mine." The, you know, the bickering begins, and Solomon says, "Cut him in half." Everybody, you, you take your half and you're happy going your way. And immediately, what does the the real mom do? Freaks out and says, "Let it. Let her. Let her. She can have him." Right. We see him act as judge. He is the one who essentially resolved cases. And so what you find in verses 2 and verse 6 is kind of this idea of a righteous judge and then simultaneously you find in verse 6 the judgment of God. Now it's important that we understand this, brothers and sisters. When we come to this passage, what I want you to know is we are about to examine the wrath of God. Perhaps one of the most forgotten and ignored doctrines. We have essentially taken God, robbed him of his holiness, his glory, and his justice because it doesn't make us feel good. The start to pretty much every bad doctrine is, well, I don't like the way that makes me feel. We bow to truth. We bow to truth and truth alone. Every Sunday morning, we stand up. Whoever is standing up to preach the Word of God at Mercy Hill says something very similar to Pastor Wade when he was here. Is we stand and we say, this is the only, only, Infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. That means, as much as I love you and genuinely care for you, I don't base what is true on your feelings. And I don't base what's true on my feelings. I am fickle. My feelings change with the wind that the Word of God has endured forever and will continue to endure. So as we examine this, I'm encouraging you to look into this as we examine the wrath of God, don't think to yourself, this rubs me the wrong way. It probably should. And frankly, should produce some type of fear and trembling before the holy God. And so let's look at verse 2. God is indeed the righteous judge. Notice verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So the very first thing that we see is the Lord Jesus, as he is sent, came to judge. Now, I'm preaching through the book of John right now, and you have many, many passages in there about Christ's judgment. You, even, you see him say, sometimes I came not to judge, and then you see him really even in the next chapter say, I came to judge. Brothers and sisters, he is the divine judge. There are moments where he withholds his judgment, and there are moments in which he executes it. And what you find here is the Father is sending the Son with the intent of judging Every single soul will be judged by what Christ has done with them and by what they do with Christ. Every single soul. He is the dividing line. And frankly, he has always been the dividing line. There is not a single moment in redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation where Christ has not been the dividing line. In Cain and Abel we see it. Abel brought a sacrifice, the sacrifice that was prescribed in Genesis chapter 3 where God in his infinite grace clothes Adam and Eve with garments of skin. He takes that creature, he skins it, he ultimately kills that animal to clothe Adam and Eve with it. Abel, just shortly after this, has been taught sacrifices to the Lord are to be done with blood. Why? Because it is a foreshadowing. It's meant to point us forward to the true and better blood sacrifice in Christ. And Abel says, I'm going to bow to that. I'm going to look forward to my true and better mediator. And we have Cain who says, I've worked hard for this. And that sacrifice will never be accepted before the holy God. Because every single one of your righteous deeds, if that is what you wish to call them, are as filthy rags. And frankly, no preacher should do a just examination of that passage in mixed company. It is a heinous thing to bring before the Holy God your filthy rags because the primary thing it does is it looks to the cross of Christ and says, not sufficient. And so what you see here is this judge that is sent forth to be the grand dividing line. Your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. He is the one who possesses the scepter of Judah. In the uh, last days of, uh, of Jacob, Israel's life, he blesses Judah and says the scepter will not pass from you. What we find in Psalm 110 is a reiteration of that. That scepter that we see Jacob, Israel, bless, bless Judah with is the same scepter that we see the Lord Jesus operate with. As he comes, he is the true and better king. He is the only righteous, perfect heir. He is the better son of David. He is the lion of Judah. We use that terminology often. He is the lion of Judah. Now, we like that. We always picture the lion fighting for us, that he's our protector, that he's our, the one that stands in the gap for us, and certainly that is the case. But simultaneously, if you look in verse 6, we will see something that perhaps is a bit more, can, can frustrate the pride of man at bare minimum. In verse 6 it says this, He will execute judgment among the nations. We say, so, yes, execute judgment. What does that look like? Filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs, by the way. That essentially means that he will shatter heads. It's almost the idea of bashing a head in. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will perfectly judge. What that means is that for every trespass against his holy law, With every failing, with every missing of the mark, and with every form of iniquity where we take the good and perfect gifts that God has given us and twist them and make them into something wicked, He will execute justice, and He does so based upon His holy standard. The reason that we have friction in regard to the wrath of God is not because we don't know what sin is. It's because we don't know who the holy God is. The reason we're okay with the minor sins is because we compare it to the other people in our day. But should we compare it to the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God? Or should we compare it to the image that we see in Isaiah chapter 6 of a king high and lifted up? Holy, holy, holy is that grand proclamation. And you come in and you tell your white lie. You would never think to yourself, based upon your own standard, that you deserve to have your head smashed in. But the holy God demands it. He demands blood. Not a drip, not a drop. He demands all of it. It is a life that he demands. A life. We often hear it said that you can't pay your penalty. I've been I've been a part of standing in a circle and having multiple people trying to evangelize the same person. And I hear and I hear somebody say from time to time and it just oh, it just makes me cringe. You can't pay your penalty, I hear them say. That's a lie. You will fail to pay your penalty, but you can make an attempt. You can make an attempt, and you can make uh, an eternal attempt. And that is the fate of everyone who would look to the cross of Christ and say, That's not what I'm looking for here. If you genuinely hear me, especially those of you in here who do not know the Lord, you will pay your penalty. What we find here where He is going to execute perfect judgment, the idea of him smashing in heads and filling the lands with corpses, should you reject the Lord Jesus, this is your eternal fate. Your eternal fate. It is wrath and fury. That is the true wickedness of sin. We look at it and we laugh at it often the end of Romans, the last phrase is that it gives this huge list of sins that people have done and then there's this little little phrase at the end and it says, "And and you give hearty approval to those who practice them. How often are we guilty of winking at sin? When should we think about it rightly, it would cause us to tremble to our core. And so what you find here is a holy God who will Execute perfect justice. And perfect justice is eternal wrath and fury for an eternally offended God. You bear his image and we mar it with sin. The original implication of man was to go forth into the world, multiply and subdue it, to broadcast the image of God throughout creation. And now, due to our sin, we broadcast the contrary. That's how perverted the fall actually made man. And what you find here is a God who will execute perfect justice. So, that was good news, right? Praise be to God. We're actually going to get to some really good news here in a moment. So, um, verse 3 and 5, let's move forward. This is sweet. Okay, so verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Jumping down to verse 5, it says this, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Now, let's first of all examine verse 5. We've kind of already developed that a little bit, and then we'll jump back up to verse 3. So, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Now, the beauty of this is... Uh, There is not a single soul that's exempt from anything that we just discussed. Every single soul is born under the curse. They are under the wrath of God due to Adam, our first father's sin. And now we bear that wrath. It doesn't matter your social position here below. When you stand before God, you stand before God as an image bearer who has throughout your life sinned and marred that image. And for them, there will come a day that we will probably best proclaim It is a day of dread. The time will come to a close. The time will come to a close. It's the beauty of that sweet verse today is the day of salvation. And, brothers and sisters, if you were here this morning, this evening, that is still true. Today is indeed the day of salvation, but there will come a day where that will no longer be proclaimed. The time will be over. The rejection of Christ will be finished. Whether that day be the day you draw your last breath or his glorious return, it will be a day of dread. Perhaps you will be the one who stands before the holy God and says, Lord, look, I've done all of these things in your name. Which is just a living illustration of the man who would present his filthy rags before the holy God. And what does he say? Away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. John MacArthur says that there is no one so difficult to convert than the false Christian. Don't be that one. The question is not what you do, it's who you know. Do you know the living God? Have you trusted in Christ? Would you cast your filthy rags aside and lean wholly on Him? We say that we are saved by faith alone. Sola fide. By faith alone. Do not dare bring a filthy rag with the blood of Christ. It cannot be done. Bringing anything with that precious blood is a rejection of it. And so what we find here is this day of dread. But... What is most interesting, we have in that last bracket there, uh, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Now, I want you to jump back up here. I know I'm changing some things, but that'll be all right. So, verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. This is not a different day. This is a change of perspective. We call it a day of dread. We call it a day of glory. Mercy Hill, we use this language pretty regularly, that that day for the saint is a day of glory, or it is a day of dread for those who have rejected their Lord. What you have here is this grand scene beginning to be displayed. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. So let's ask the question, a simple one. How do we go from being the kings that are shattered on the day of his wrath, the corpses that fill the field, to what you find in verse 3, who people who offer themselves freely, who are clothed in holy garments, how do we find ourselves transition from verse 5 to verse 3? How do we go from viewing the day of dread as a day of glory? Well, King David gives us a glorious perspective. And he does so in the most interesting fashion. He places a verse that really shouldn't be in a song, a psalm about The kingship of the Lord. What do we find? We find in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The way we go from serving the prince of the power of the air, mentioned in Ephesians 2, making reference to the enemy, to looking at that great day of dread that we feared and trembled before, looking at and seeing it as the most glorious moment in redemptive history where our groom will come rescue us and bring us home is through the priestly work of Christ. He is not only the king of kings. He is the true and better priest, not the priest like the Levites who would go in and offer sacrifices year after year. He is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's name means uh, he's, he's the king of Salem as well and I actually made a typo there on your number four. He is the king of peace. Look at this. Look at Psalm 110. Do you see peace there? You see wrath and fury. But in this little bit of a bracket, just a brief moment to give you a bit of a glimpse into the king of peace. He is showing you that amidst his wrath and fury, there is peace for those who would rest in him. He is the king of peace. He is the one that is actually able to give us peace with God, as Romans 5 would say. Peace is not a ceasefire. Hear me when I say this, and I am convinced that almost all of the the Bible Belt Christianity believes in a, a a cross that doesn't actually bring peace. It brings a little bit of less animosity, perhaps, and then you because you believe in Christ, you're able to begin to kind of work out your salvation, make make God like you a little bit more throughout your life, brothers and sisters. If that's true, Romans five isn't. Romans 5 says, the cross of Christ being justified with God then gives you peace with Him. The reason that He is after the order of Melchizedek, who is the king of peace, is He is the only one who is actually able to provide peace with God. Peace. Rest. Almost perhaps cast our minds back to Psalm 23, when we consider our good shepherd our good shepherd who cares for us who fills our cups and they overflow our good shepherd who leads us by streams of water and lets us lie down in green pastures who prepares a table before us before I mean before our enemies no no strife can befall us because we follow and have the king of peace intercede only the king of peace but because he is the actual priest of righteousness I preach this honestly. I do my best, honestly, to preach it every time. The reason you're at peace with God is not just because at the cross of Christ your sins were forgiven. It's true. Your debt's been paid for in full. Colossians says the record of debt has been canceled out, nailed to a tree. When we consider just the the... the, the sayings in regard to sin being cast as far as the east is from the west, it has actually been crucified in Christ. It's a glorious truth. That means that when we look at verses 6 and it says, He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Brothers and sisters, I need you to understand that there was a corpse that was in your place. The reason we look at this and we say, "Look at the corpse, like the wrath that is emptied, that cup that we mentioned originally is the cup that would have led to in your life." Should Christ not be your mediator, then you would be standing here as corpses scattered throughout a battlefield that God has executed justice on. But the beauty of the cross of Christ is justice was actually done at the cross. Your justice was dealt with righteously. Not sweeping it under a rug, not throwing it into the back of his mind, but instead actually dealing with it. The gavel fell at the cross. He executed justice. He filled the land with corpses. He just did it in one. And so what you have is this glorious truth that justice has actually been done for you. That means that there can be no hearing our former sins creep up on us and bearing us down because it's been crucified with Christ. That means the future sins that we commit, as we look forward, perhaps we find ourselves trembling and often saints I know do, but want to sin and rebel against my God. And yet even then we can look and say, oh, but there is grace. Your sin's been paid. But even that is not the fullness of the cross. It's half of the good news. The fullness of the good news is this terminology that He is the priest of righteousness. It is not as though you stand before God simply without guilt. That would not be enough to get you into the gates of heaven. You you deserve no reward. That's why in Romans 8 we have this grand phrase, you are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Every single Perfect, righteous deed. Every ounce of obedience the Son did. When parenthetical statement there that says He did this to fulfill the Scriptures. Those minute details of fulfilling perfect righteousness are credited to the life of the saint. You don't stand before God free from guilt if you be in Christ. You stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Meaning, that the same reward that he earned, this glorious statement, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Though we will not sit in that glorious throne of David, we are united with our Lord in his reward. His glorious, eternal reward. All of the wrath that we spoke of, absorbed, completely dealt with in Christ. And since that be the case, we should with great joy and often praise our priest king, for he was able to ransom and redeem us to himself, and by God's good favor, we get to look at him and serve him faithfully as our glorious king.